Podbn. Hello, everybody. Welcome back to Podbn. Something very different for you this time. I thought we were done with Election Edition, but we have one more bonus episode for you. The Bloomington Firefighters Local 49 Political Action Committee asked me to moderate a forum for them featuring the candidates they endorsed for the upcoming election. I figured if I was already going to be chatting with them, I might as well record it and push it out to you as a PodBN episode. You can also see a video of it, if you'd like, on the Firefighters Facebook page. I'll put a link to that in the show notes. Clayton provides a nice introduction at the beginning, so I'll leave that up to him to explain further. Hope you enjoy it. So, welcome. My name is Clayton Matson, and I'm the chairman of the Bloomington Firefighters Local 49 Political Action Committee. We are excited to hold our first ever endorsed candidate forum. Unfortunately, as with so many other things this past year, this is not the event that we had hoped to host, but we felt that this event was important. Uh, so we adapted with masks and limited people in the uh, uh, building and social distancing to bring this event together. Our goal for this event is to introduce our endorsed candidates and provide the voters of Bloomington good information before they go out and vote April 6th. I would like to thank the members of Local 49 and the rest of the Local 49 Political Action Committee for their efforts to make this event happen. I would like to give special thank you to our moderator for tonight, Tyson Moore of PodBN. Uh, if you have not heard of PodBN, I cannot recommend it enough. I would encourage you all to go out to your favorite podcast provider and subscribe. PodBN does a fantastic job digging into the local issues of the Bloomington Normal area. They recently completed an election series interviewing all candidates from the Bloomington and Normal. It was incredibly well done and very informative. Finally, I would like to thank our three endorsed candidates that are with us tonight. The Local 49 Political Action Committee surveyed and interviewed every candidate running for office in Bloomington. We found many good people running for office, but these three individuals here tonight with us stood out from the crowd and earned our endorsement. It is my pleasure to introduce in Ward 1, Jamie Matthey, uh, in Ward 5, candidate Nick Becker, and in Ward 7, incumbent Molly Ward. I thank you all for taking the time to be here with us tonight. And for my part, that is all I'm going to do. And I'm going to turn it over to Tyson uh, to get our forum started for the evening. Okay. Well, thanks for uh, inviting me to do this. Really appreciate it. And thank you guys for running for office and for being willing to sit down and do this too. I love talking local politics and uh, really looking forward to what we're going to do here tonight. So first, just for people who... um, give people a chance to know you. Uh, Let's just start. I guess we'll go by, uh, I'll ask a series of questions, and we can just go by Jamie and the Molly and then Nick. And uh, the first one is just uh, asking what's leading you to seek this position and why you believe you should be entrusted with this responsibility. Sure. Uh, So my name is Jamie Matthey, and I am the City Council Member for Ward 1. Uh, Ward 1 is the south center part of Bloomington. It starts with the northern uh, tip of a triangle in on Washington Street 
and it includes uh, go south down the South Hill neighborhood, swings around east on Veterans Parkway um, to Westminster Village, and then kind of works its way back up through a lot of the older neighborhoods in the south center part of town. Um, I am running again because there were projects that I started that I said I was going to do uh, when I ran in 2017 that aren't done yet. I said I wanted to work on infrastructure and improve the infrastructure specifically in our older parts of town. Uh, we have, I like to joke that we have sewer lines that are still in place that were put there when Abraham Lincoln was still practicing law in Bloomington. And we still need a lot of work to, to get done there. We've done a much better job of making infrastructure non-political where money is being spent where the worst problems are as opposed to one-ninth of the money going into each ward. Um, we're doing a lot better job on that, but I don't think that we're where I'm comfortable yet, so I want to keep pushing for that. I want to keep pushing for improving communications with our business community to make it easier to start a business in Bloomington or move your business to Bloomington. And I also started several technology-related um, projects as well, including the Bloomington Technology Commission and the Bloomington Normal Innovation Alliance that are both working towards goals of optimizing and streamlining technology to make our interactions with our residents far smoother, far easier, um, and save money along the way at the same time. So that's what I'm doing. All right. How about you, Molly? What led you to seek this position? Yeah, so I'm Molly Ward, and I was actually appointed to the position back at the beginning of November when the previous council person left the the neighborhood. And um, I've decided that I wanted to continue in a full term after this, um, after having won a spot on the, the ballot in, in um, February. I... Um, I really am wanting to continue because I'd like to have a little bit more time than just a few months to to um, move forward some some issues and and some ideas that are that are complicated. I think that a lot of the issues that affect our community are are issues that you can't resolve in just a few months. That are are things that are are more complicated than than you know slapping a quick fix on it. Um, I really want to represent the views of my neighborhood um, on the issues that affect not just our neighborhood, but really affect the whole community. I want to be able to share the wisdom of our neighborhood. Um, ward 7 is, is another one of our older neighborhoods, one of our, our older wards. Um, we, we run, we're basically in the northwest side of Bloomington, so running from um, about Illinois Wesleyan west um, past out out on Market Street, past the interstate, north to Division Street, and south to, to Washington, roughly. It's kind of a jagged line. Um, and as such, we also experience a lot of the same issues that, you know, that other older neighborhoods experience. Um, and, and really, those issues are not things that lend themselves to a quick fix. They didn't develop over, you know, just a, a, a minute, and they aren't going to be resolved in a minute either. And so that's something that's important to me. Um, it, this may sound a little weird, um, but the the kinds of of everyday practical things that that people deal with, um, whether it's you know the potholes or whether it's the um, the the issues with our infrastructure like sewers and so forth, um, that kind of stuff jazzes me. It, it interests me, and um, it, it's really pretty satisfying, I've found, over the last couple of months. You know, when neighbors call up or, or constituents call up and say, you know, hey, there's this issue, 
can you help me out with this? It's, it's pretty satisfying. <clears throat> and that's something that I really want to um, continue with. Okay. Nick, I remember from the podcast, you're a pretty guy. You got a big family. So what's leading you to want to take on the second job here? Yeah, that, that's a good way to put it, actually. You know, when, when we moved to Bloomington, we moved about 15 years ago, and we moved back to Illinois to be, we picked Bloomington to be halfway between my wife's hometown in Naperville and, and mine in Peoria so that we could support both families. And we, we really knew no one here at that time. And the community just supported us so well, and it was so nice as far as just becoming a place that we felt like every part of Bloomington was home to us. And, you know, I, I loved that feel, and I really, my kids grew up here, you know, all seven of them have had a significant time here, and it's, it's just been a great, great place. At that time, the economy and everything seemed pretty insulated from the rest of the places in the state where we had State Farm and its boom, we had Mitsubishi, we had a lot of things that were really, really comfortable, and it just felt like this was probably the best community in Illinois, to be honest with you, as far as just balance of everything. And over the last few years, I've seen that kind of shift a little bit. And I don't want to imply that the sky is falling, but I've seen it shift to where I see more divisiveness, I see more division, I see the economy changing even pre-COVID, where, you know, with the loss of some of our foundational businesses, there, there's trouble there. And I just wanted to, to say, wait a second, I'm not going to sit and complain about this. I want to jump in and try and contribute and support and help. And I do believe I have some experience that, that can really help on the business side. You know, I've been in business and in the private sector for 30 years managing things and complex, diverse projects. So that divisiveness piece is something that I don't want to say I enjoy it. I hate divisiveness, but I enjoy being able to be the person that gets in the middle of it and tries to bring people together and tries to seek first to understand the viewpoints of everyone so that we can work together and not just be so polarized or binary the way we are now. So I really look forward to the ability to bring people together to help support and focus on the economic development side. And also, as, as kind of everybody's mentioned, through talking to the ward, the ideas of infrastructure and the day-to-day -day stuff and the public safety stuff are really, really on the minds of everybody in the ward. So I want to be able to bring their viewpoints forward as well and try and support them as best as I can. Well, you mentioned public safety. That's uh, clearly a topic we want to cover here today since we're here with the firefighters. Um, and uh, I'll start with you, Molly. I mean, you mentioned there's complicated issues, there's not easy solutions. So uh, when you think about public safety in your view, what's, uh, what's a key public safety issue for Bloomington? And what's one step you'd like to see taken to improving that situation? Yeah, I think that one of the issues that rises to the top for me is the issue of gun violence in our community, um, particularly on the west side, but not exclusively on the west side. Gun violence is something that that um, is is an issue. It's it's really a crisis that that we need to be paying attention to as a, as a community. Um, and I guess the thing that I will say in terms of the one thing that we, that one step that I would take is actually to say that one step is not gonna resolve it. Um, really, the issue of gun violence in our community is something that we've got to commit ourselves to acting comprehensively on. And it's not going to have a one-step, one one-size-fits-all kind of solution. Um, I think 
to do so, to think that there is just one step is like trying to put a Band-Aid on a gaping wound. And, you know, frankly, that's not going to happen. This is something that's near and dear to my heart. Um, it has been for some years as I've watched neighbors um, be gunned down, not not personally in, you know, in front of me, but I've had neighbors just blocks from my home um, be targeted and, and killed. And I've provided support to their families at, at those times and over the years have grown increasingly tired of speaking out, of marching, um, raising this as an issue and and um, feeling like, like it's just kind of going in the wind. And being on council now feels like the opportunity to finally try to get some things done in a comprehensive way. Um, I would say it's not just something that affects bad guys. Um, it's not just something that affects people out there in another city. It's not just the mass shootings that we hear about too frequently in distant communities. It's literally something that's a public health crisis that's affecting and killing children on our own doorsteps. Last summer, for example, um, my family and I were awakened at about one o'clock in the morning. Um, somebody was firing off multiple gunshots literally outside our window from our property, targeting a house across the street. Um, that family moved out of our neighborhood within a month. They were homeowners who were living in the neighborhood kid, you know, riding the school bus with my kid, um, that hits really close to home when I hear my kids say, Mom, I watched the, the flash of the muzzle. That, and I could hear the people whispering, that's really close to home. But that happens way too frequently in our community. So we need to approach it with as much intentionality and passion as we would any other health crisis. We didn't, with with the the pandemic, we didn't just, um, you know, s start marching in the streets and say that's going to resolve it. We approached it as a public health crisis as it is, and I think we need to do the same with gun violence and use our heads as well as our hearts to address it. That means identifying where our efforts need to be, um, and that means you know mapping out instances of gun violence, for example, and getting those data updated on a regular basis so that we can actually address those, those issues in an intelligent way. Um, we need to, one of the things that we say in healthcare, um, you know, is if you, if you can't measure it, um, you don't know, if, if you don't um, count it, if you can't measure it, you don't know how bad the problem is, right? And um, it's, it's got to be up to date that we can, we can look at that. We need to jumpstart some of the conversations about this issue that have been stalled by the pandemic. Um, there was some good work, some good momentum, you know, building a couple of years ago. And, and it seems like with the pandemic that, like a lot of things in, in our community, it's, it's just kind of come to a halt. Um, and we need to figure out what the next steps are that the, once we have the data so that we can tailor our efforts in an intelligent way. It, there's not going to be a one-size-fits-all approach. What, what works in my neighborhood isn't necessarily going to work in your neighborhood or, in, or you know, across town. And so we can't pretend like, like 
it's just something we can snap our fingers to, to fix. And we've got to get all the stakeholders at the table, um, people who are affected by gun violence, people who are trying to address it. We've got to bring them together rather than shutting people out of the conversation. Yeah. Thank you. Uh, Nick, same question to you. What's a um, key public safety issue for the city of Bloomington, and what's something you'd like to see done to improve the situation? So, you know, I thought about this a little bit b beforehand and in, in thinking about it, and, and there's a lot of dynamics to public safety, right? And, and I thought, do I want to go to a different place than, than Molly did? And, you know, I could talk about response times. We could talk about the 911 system. We could talk about a lot of different things. But when it comes down to it, it does come down to the violence. And it's, it's something that's also very, very close to me in that several of the areas that I walk every, every day, you know, I've walked through and seen the police there after the shootings recently. And, and I do feel like it's, it seems closer. And it also, as I've talked to people in the ward, every person that lives over close to Hershey and Clearwater or Hershey and Arrowhead in that area, it's on their mind. You know, it, it is a really pressing issue for them. And I think what we have to do, and, and Molly, you said it very well, and that it's, it's not one step. It requires a unified effort. It requires support of us for um, our law enforcement. It requires support and interaction from the law enforcement and the, and the district attorney. It requires interaction with the community um, to really, you don't, I don't, I'm not going to say this quite right, but it isn't like you legislate fixes to these kind of problems. How you fix these kind of problems is you get all the people together and you interact. That means public and law enforcement. That means us as the city council and the city staff working to try and provide the necessary tools to all of those people to make the problem better. And I think it's involved mostly in that supportive, cooperative attitude where we're all working together to drive this. And it, it has to be something that, again, is long-term, it's measured, it's focused, so that we can do this. If you look at right now, um, you know, our, our police force, and I'm glad you brought up the guns thing specifically, but uh, the program they have, they have a program specifically in, uh, where it looks at taking guns off the street. And I believe the last number I heard, and I forget the time period, whether it was six months or a year, but they had found 40 additional weapons that they were able to take off the street. And I'm going to say approximately 40 because I don't remember it for sure. But it's nice that they are working in that direction already. And I would like to see that, uh, that to really continue because if we want the city to grow and continue to be the, you know, the happy city that Bloomington supposedly is for nationwide, we have to have a safe and, and uh, you know, peaceful city where people feel comfortable to, to live and also where businesses feel comfortable to come and ask their employees to come live here as well. So we need that on both sides. Jamie, do you have any uh, thoughts on the topic, either, um, you know, gun violence or, or another public yeah. safety issue? Well, it's, it's fun to, uh, to be bad and clean up on a question like this, too, right? Like, what do I say that hasn't already been said? So I'll, I'll take it in a slightly different spin that one of my concerns in general, uh, and it applies to a whole bunch of possible topics that we could talk about tonight, is, is mental health and mental health awareness. Right, it uh, it it applies to gun violence directly, and um, you know, in, in terms of of 
finding people help that need help before something very bad happens. Um, it also applies to, uh, so I have a business in downtown Bloomington, and um, most of our homeless population in Bloomington normal live in or around the downtown area because that's where most of the services that they can get are also in downtown. So it's, they, they just hang out there. And many times, the f when something go is going sideways, the first people that get called are the fire department, right? 911 gets called and uh, either the ambulance or the full truck comes out. And, you know, we had a situation at my store last year where an older uh, homeless gentleman that I'd seen outside quite a bit um, came in and said he thought he was having a heart attack. So we immediately called 911 and, um, you know, the fire department came out because everybody's a trained EMT. So, and I remember hearing one of the guys say, oh, it, you know, it's, and I, I don't want to say his name, but they clearly knew who he was because um, he had been involved in many situations where um, 911 had been called to help him out. And it all stems back to that mental health issue of providing, getting the people the help that they need um, as we go along. So it's, it's all part of the Mental Health Coordinating Council and providing funding um, to the nonprofit agencies that need assistance for, from us. And you know it, it's like this weird um, nebulous thing when we say mental health, of, it touches so many areas of our lives and so many things that we do. Um, you know, back to gun violence, right? There's there's so many red flags that some of the mass shooters have had that nobody addressed. People said, we need to get this person help, and there was no help to be gotten, right? Um, so it's, it's just, you know, that's, that's a big, huge topic of so many things um, that are possible as long as we keep a focus on there. Um, right before I joined council, um, the council had voted for a 1% sales tax increase, and part of that money went to the county to mental health awareness and mental health funding, and um, has really started, you know, now we're a few years into it, and it's really starting to show positive payoffs for us. Nobody was happy about raising the sales tax by 1% to do that, but the results are really starting to show at this point, and um, I just think we need to keep heading down that path, keep the conversations going, keep the ball moving and, um, you know, just keep working with everybody. Like, like Molly said, getting all the stakeholders at the table, the fire department's one of them because most of the time, you know, you guys are the ones that are first line having to deal with whatever the situation is going on. So, um, it's, it's a huge topic, but that's, it's, it's certainly an important one that we have to keep focus on. When you guys talk about bringing stakeholders to the table, my mind goes to the Public Safety and Community Relations Board, the PSCRB. Um, do you guys have any thoughts on how that board could be leveraged to try to help with what we're talking about here? I think it involves, um, you know, building the trust. I think the PSCRB is a is a, a key pivot point in terms of building trust between the public and and city. And I think that, that 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 can't be underestimated. I think that some of the work that we actually just recently did on the city council um, 
in terms of um, bringing on youth members for the PSCRB and ensuring that they're able to vote, for example. Those those are some steps that, um, that I think go a long way toward building that trust. I think there's still, you know, room to be to be focusing attention on the PSCRB, I think, um, you know, ensuring that, that again, that there's, you know, up-to-date information out there that, that people have easy access to and, and that they're encouraged and able to get to meetings and that sort of thing are, are really important. But I, I do see the PSCRB as playing kind of that, that bridge between the, you know, the city and the public. I, th I think it's a little bit of the awareness um, that everything was not perfect, everything is not perfect, and there's a path to move forward with it, but I agree with Molly that it's, it's one of those um, touchstones that we can work as the bridge to make sure that open and transparent communication continues. And I would, I would add to that is this isn't a statement against that, that board in any way, shape, or form, but I think that can't be the only vehicle. It has to be beyond that. It has to be, you know, we, we've heard the term education come into play. More often than not, when there's a, a divisive issue out there, people get polarized and they hear the piece of information that they want to hear or that agrees with them, and we, we end up in a, a divisive discussion where if we can really focus a little bit on education and sharing information and showing different things, I think that will help a lot in you know, allowing people, again, seek first to understand is what I always try and say, so that all, it, it doesn't become this side versus that side, it just becomes us working together to understand the needs of everybody around. Oh, absolutely. And the PS, PCSRB is going to continue to evolve too. It has to continue to evolve with the times. It has to continue to evolve with the needs um, of education as well. And, and, and you know, that branches off to we have to work with, like District 87, our education partners as part of this too, because a large part of gun violence and a large part of mental health awareness um, is directly tied to the schools and to our education system and also to supporting the parents who are trying to keep their kids in school, who are trying to um, put their children on the correct path. Nobody wants their children to be involved in any of these situations like we're talking about, but some of that involves, you know, means that we need to figure out how to provide supports to those parents. My wife's a fourth grade teacher, and she said that the success of a child is directly, directly tied to how involved their parents are in their children's lives and in their children's education. And if you've got parents who are uh, working two or two and a half jobs a week, uh, you know, to keep food on the table and the rent paid, how are they going to be involved in their children's lives? And, and if the parents aren't involved in the children's lives, then where do the kids go, right? And then that ties to things like um, after-school programs, Boys and Girls Club, O'Neill Pool, Miller Park, and all the things. You know, uh, Chief Hefner told us a few years ago that if we don't give kids things to do, they're going to find things to do on their own, and we're not going to be happy about what their choices always were. And so it, it, it all ties together, and it's got to be a concerted effort. When we're talking about stakeholders, the, you know, the school board and the school's got to be part of that too. 
And that's where I see it as not a one-size-fits-all kind of kind of solution because every ward is different in in what some of those needs are, and and yet those those things and those issues are intertwined. So, you know, as you were saying, the economic stability, you know, plays into the gun violence question, which feeds into you know all these other layers, and and you can't just split them apart and and expect that oh, we can address this one thing without also addressing these other things. They've got to go together in a comprehensive way. Yeah. So you, you bring up a, a really good point, and I think when you say the, you know, the direction you're going is about helping the people so that we don't get into that situation and working with schools. Well, the other, other area that really is directly related, my wife's a teacher too, by the way, and she says the same thing, is the support of the family. You know, when, when you see so many children in a situation where they're not able to get the support of, of their family, we need to provide support for parents. How do, you, how do I be a better parent? How can I support parents? So as an example, Children's Home and Aid does a thing called the Fatherhood Coalition, and I work with them uh, weekly. I'm actually missing the meeting tonight uh, for this. but. Um, just to get together with dads and trying to help dads be better dads and know how to support their kids better. So even programs like that are really going to help contribute to my kid's supported better, he's not anxious, maybe he doesn't go down that mental health path, right? Um, so there's a lot of ways that we can contribute, and I think that it, they all kind of mesh together like you're saying. Yeah. And I, I guess I just, I'm going to jump back in here and I want to emphasize the importance, I think, of the economic stability piece, because I think that we also need to look at, you know, when, when we say, you know, kids are going to find something to do if they don't have something to do. Yes, but we also, I think, as an have an obligation as as leaders in the community to, you know, provide economic opportunities for kids, um, because this is not just um, for many many kids. At least in my my community, my neighborhood, you know, this isn't just um, a luxury kind of thing. Having a summer job or having an after school job, it's really helping to to put food on the table for the family. And when when we provide opportunities like that. I think that that we're, you know, we're strengthening the community as a whole. Um, one of the, I, I love all these examples that you're offering. Um, I just wanted to share, since we're here with uh, some firefighters, just when that train wreck happened in normal, I really, uh, Clayton and I were talking a little bit, I loved hearing about the coordination that was happening between the normal and the Bloomington fire departments too. Um, I understand the same thing happens with the police departments. I think it's a real model of collaboration in our uh, in our community that we're you know we're all trying to help each other out. So um, you know, just appreciate you guys doing that too. That's that's part of the job. Uh, it doesn't matter. The boundaries don't matter when a call comes in. So we respond where we're needed. We help when we need. Um, Molly, I liked how you brought in the economic part of it, too, because a lot of times, especially in a, during a campaign, you kind of have this pitting of, like, social needs and economic needs against each other. You know, do you care about people or do you care about money? And um, I see that as being a false choice myself. It's, you know, the two are related to each other, right? Um, people are better off when they're financially secure and have economic activities. Um, I'm leading into the discussion of pensions, though, because that is the financial consideration with, uh, with public sector, um, the public sector, of course, uh, the pensions are uh, political football, especially here in Illinois, and there's tension between 
supporting those who take the risks that help our community and the financial repercussions of the promises that we make with that. So um, you know, what, what's something that you'd like to be able to, to see be done to help improve that situation, uh, take the politics out of that conversation and um, help improve the pension situation? So if we want to start with this, I think there's a piece that we have to understand is, is what we as a, a city council can do versus what is handled at a state level, right? So there's a lot of this that the, the bigger picture is not really in our in our capability to handle. What we can handle, you know, maybe you're dealing with the contract signing. Congratulations on getting that signed before the deadline. That was good. You, um, <laughs> you know, trying to get that done and taken care of. We can have interactions at that level, but the bigger picture of the pensions, and I think the part that is is frustrating to people is also something where there's some education needed. How many people really understand the problem? So is the problem that people are paid too much? Is the problem that a bad contract was negotiated? Or is the problem how we manage the pension fund and how we take money out of the pension fund and, and what the inflation percentage that's put in there that th there's a lot of assumptions in a pension fund that cause these problems. And the assumptions can be like I said, okay, we're going to assume that the money we put into this pension fund is going to make 10% a year, therefore we only need to put in a, you know, $100. We don't need to put in $500. Well, then when the return is not 10%, it's 3%, you end up very, very far behind. When you borrow against that pension fund and you're not getting the return, you end up even further behind. So now the management of the pension fund has really forced us to be way behind the eight ball. So we have to have some regulation as to how we do it. Again, that's not really in our control as city council, but I think what I would like to see is, is better management and regulation. And the other thing that I mentioned, the, the inflation piece. So I, I'm, I'm a person, I don't have a pension, right? I work, work in the private sector and there's no pension. And year on year, I get, I, as a manager, I get a, pool to give people raises that's based on the inflation percent. So I've had 0% several times in my 15 years. I've had 1%. I've had 2 Very rarely have I been given 3%. But a lot of the pensions are based on a year-on-year -year compounded 3%. So the, what that happens is the, the pension amount can be growing disproportionately to what's actually happening in the, in the, um, in the marketplace. So that puts you further behind. So to me, a lot of this issue is about the management and the financials of the pension fund. It's not about do people want to take pension funds away from firefighters, policemen, or other government employees. It's about how can we create a sustainable system. And if you look at even companies like State Farm that I think was one of the last ones to really back out of doing the pensions just recently, they said new employees are no longer eligible, they realized that some of the systems weren't sustainable. So what we have to do is encourage people at the state level and, and beyond to really work to create a sustainable system so that we can meet our commitments. That's the number one thing when you talk about reforming and dealing with this. I don't want people to think in any way, shape, or form, and I think uh, Darren Bailey said something similar to this recently in an article. It's not, nobody wants to take anybody's pension away. We want to create a system that allows us to sustain this so that cities don't end up in a bad place where, you know, it's kind of like the city goes bankrupt, well then you're in a big 
you're in a world of hurt that's not good for anybody. So we just need to control that system a little bit more and, and try and manage it better. I think that's the best place to start for right now. Um, just wanted to ask for a clarification. When you said better regulation on it, um, I was interpreting that as you saying, like, we need to control it better ourselves. We need to have better, like, management of it. Not that we need better laws, like a regulation. I, I, I mean, there should be rules about what, when you can borrow from it and, and force people to be a little more responsible about okay. how they manage the, the funds, because I think there has been some mismanagement. Okay. All right. Well, I'll, I'll jump in and I'll just say that the mismanagement that happened was that there were councils years ago that didn't pay as they went along. That was the mismanagement, right? They, they knew that based on the number of people who were working at that time, they needed to make a contribution so that it could go in and it could earn that compound interest over years and they didn't fulfill that obligation. Right, that was the single biggest mismanagement step. Is they didn't pay and they didn't fund, and that that happened um, in, in our local Bloomington police and fire funds. It happened at the state level as well. Um, I don't know that we've had any borrowing against our local pool, but we just didn't put enough money in. That was really what what happened there, and. I'm not going to try to second guess those councils. I have no idea what they were facing um, yeah, at that time and, and why why they didn't pay as they went. Um, it could have been misassumptions, like you said, with um, assumptions of the incorrect um, tax rates or interest rates. But now we've been in a cycle where we are making our obligations for the current year. And now we're behind the eight ball and we have been putting in additional money every year to try to get the pensions built up because, well, in, in part uh, because we had no choice because the state passed a law that said that the pension fund had to be at least 90% funded. And I think it was 2042. Um, the city council at the time, again, right before I joined the city council, um, they said we're going we're to set a goal of 100%. And so it's a sliding scale where we're putting money aside right now to try to get ahead of it. The more money we can put in earlier, we, we let um, interest help us push that farther and farther along. But that obligation is going to grow, right? I think this year our total pension obligation was $12 million. Next year's $13 million. The year after that's $14 million because we have to keep putting in more and more money to achieve that 2040 deadline. And at the end, those last three years, it's 23 million. So that's 10 million more into the pension funds to get them caught up than we're paying right now. And that's a scary number to face. That's, you know, that's a good percentage of our budget right now that we've got to pay 10 million more to get caught up. At 2043, once we're caught up, it's going to be, you know, we're at $23 million. Um, but by then, I mean, we, we might need some pretty serious um, infrastructure upgrades as we go along. So it's a, the management philosophy has changed, but we're very much um, behind the eight ball and trying to get caught up right now. And it's, it's meaning we have had to sacrifice in other places. Um, to, to get to that number, to get to that magic 100% um, number for 2042. Um, there's also some massive changes at the state level of aggregating all the pension plans together that we're hoping that everybody combined together across the state um, can 
have more effective use of a larger pool of money with professional money managers. Uh, I know I've talked to, to Clayton and some others about whether or not, you know, the firefighters thought that was a good idea. Seems like everybody's tentatively cautious at this point. Um, but, you know, we, we do live in Illinois, so we'll see. Um, but the good news is, is they won't be able to borrow against that fund. And that's one of the current things that has been very clearly defined is you can't borrow against that fund. Because we've seen that before. Your wife, my wife are a teacher, and we know that the teacher's fund, the TRA, has been borrowed against many times, as has the higher education fund. Uh, so it's, it's going to be interesting as we go along. And that's one of the reasons I focus so much time on business growth because as the, that tax bill gets bigger, as we're trying to fund these pensions, it could either come out of property taxes from individuals or it can come out of property taxes from businesses. As we, if we can, can successfully grow more businesses in Bloomington, if we can successfully attract more businesses into Bloomington, they can take a larger burden and a larger share of that than individuals at their house can. And so that's one of the reasons why I focus so much attention on let's help people grow their businesses because we need them in 10 or 15 years. We need them to be here. We need them, their businesses to grow to help us offset the burdens that are coming down the pipe. Molly, any other thoughts to add? We're kind of getting deep into the numbers here. Yeah, but, as um, we get deep into the numbers, um, you know, I'm, I'm happy to... to weight around in those things, but I want to add something that maybe hasn't been been spoken of yet. Um, you know, the question is, how do we move this from being a political football to, to improving the situation? And I would say for me, it comes down to a foundational thing of trust. Um, you know, I was raised in with the ethic that you don't make promises that you aren't going to keep. And if you can't if you know if you um, make a promise, you need to keep it. And to me, that needs to be sort of the the foundational ground rule, the a commitment to making promises and keeping those promises. And if you can't keep those promises, don't make them in the first place. And I think when we have that kind of a, a ground rule, I think that we it, it makes it a lot easier to begin to to figure out okay. How can we find common ground rather than um, than you know one group is the the enemy and the other group is you know good guys and bad guys kind of thing again um, and rather than coming at the problem which is enormous then yes we can we can muck around in in numbers that just are mind boggling um, but it's got to come back around to how can we find a spirit of coming together to resolve it? I actually find some hope in some of the things that some have touched on already. Um, the work that's been done on the state level that's resulted in the consolidation of the downstate pensions um, so that you know we don't have everybody spinning off into to multiple directions so that there's less redundancy. Um, you know, coming together where we can, where where people can share their wisdom and create more stability and and higher rates of return for everybody, I think is always a, a good thing when you can pull people together. And I don't think that's possible without a, approaching it from a sense of trust and a sense of we're coming together not um, as good guys and bad guys, but how can we find common ground? And I think that spirit of collegiality showed, showed out in the, the way that, um, 
you know, it wasn't the same issue, obviously, but the way the firefighters contract was, was played out, I mean, it was really heartening, frankly, amid all the division and divisiveness that we've, we've seen in, you know, recent times, I'll say, um, to see people talking about how collegial that process was on, on both sides. I mean, I heard that from city staff and I heard that from the firefighters, you know, and really saying, yeah, it couldn't have happened without that. And so I see that as the way to, to improve the situation, to stop being enemies. I'm curious your view on that, Jamie, um, from being on council for a while. How is that relationship between city government and the public safety unions right now? I feel like it's significantly better. It's I know it's something that um, Clayton and I have talked about in the past, too. Um, previous city manager, I don't know why, but the, the unions were enemies, right? And As opposed to the union members are staff members. We're part of, we're all on the same team. The unions were enemies. Um, you know, from what I heard, he never met with most of the employees. He never actually was in the room with the, for the union negotiations himself. And, and I don't know why, I don't know where the, 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 the breakdown came from there. But when we hired Tim Gleason in to be our, our city manager, um, Tim has come in with the idea of he's going to be in every one of those meetings. And these, the, the union members, they're, they're part of city staff. They're on our team. We are literally the same team. We live in the same town and we're together. And, and when Tim you know, came to me and said, this is what I want to do, I'm like, that's amazing because that would be a complete reversal of everything that we've done where you know, I think this contract was two meetings and some emails in between it. And the previous contract, which was right when I came on council, I think was might have been like 20 meetings, something like that, that stretched over six months. And I mean, and it wasn't just it wasn't just uh, local 49 that was in that situation. It was also 699 for Public Works, and and every single one of we have 11 collective bargaining units in the city, and every one of them, everything was adversarial, to the point where I demanded that HR start keeping track of the number of hours that we were spending on staff time, both from the administrative side as well as. Um, on, on the union side, uh, how much staff time was going into those meetings. Everybody lawyered up, so how much money got wasted on lawyers um, at that point of time. And this is a complete reversal where everybody's like, we're really happy with how that worked. That was great. You know, two meetings, we, everybody came to the table and said, this is what we're concerned about, you know, and this is what we're concerned about, and how do we resolve this together? And that's how it should be. And so... To my mind, it's completely reversed, and it's so much better, and I'm, I'm just ridiculously happy with how it went. So I'm going to jump in and start acting now. Uh, no, <laughs> that uh, from the union perspective of things, we echo that sentiment. Um, I, I believe I had a conversation with you recently. I told you I've been on the department for 14 years, and I've obviously been involved in our union for, for the majority of those 14 years. When I started, I believe I worked under a current contract in probably my first seven to eight years for maybe a total of four to six months. So we were always behind. We were always working on a contract. We'd finish one, we'd work under it for a month, and we'd be right back in working on another one. The last contract before this one, it, it was better 
it still took some time. We still went into mediation. We still had some extra extra time lapse. I think that one took roughly six months to complete. That was better than it had been. This one with Mr. Gleason took, like you said, two to three meetings, and it was a good conversation. All the decision makers were at the table, and it worked out wonderfully, and we couldn't have been happier. I, I know my, my current union president would make fun of me because I was in the negotiations before. He always tells me that you just need to learn how to talk to people and you can get things done faster and, you know, just digging at me. But um, it, it's been a very good relationship since Mr. Gleason has come in it, the, with the city council uh, being open to talking with us. It, it's been great. I'd like to circle back just a little bit on the pensions uh, since that came up. Um, you know, listen, the, the one th point that I like to make out there is, like Molly was saying, we're, we're not trying to be an enemy. We're not trying to say the city's the enemy. We're not trying to be, hey, just give us, you know, what, what you owe us. We, we always try to work with the state and with the, with the city to make sure that we're doing our part as well to help come up with a solution. Our state association, the AFI, has been legislating at the state house numerous times. We have, it's 2040, I believe, is, is that deadline. So, so we have now gone to a two-tier pension system. So we have a group of guys that's in tier one pension, tier two pension. We did that to help with the unfunded liability. Uh, we've started the uh, consolidation pension fund, which most downstate Article Four pension funds are going into to help open up new and bigger investments that we can get into so we can get a better rate of return on our investments to, again, help reduce that unfunded liability and hopefully gain that rate of return to, to help out as far as the pension costs go and get that, that number closer. Uh, there's just so many things that are getting legislated now uh, that, you know, I always go to IMRF had that right to siphon off of city funds if they weren't, uh, you know, coming up with their obligations. We have that right now. The reason that we have that is for an issue that you were talking about. People were borrowing against the fund or they weren't paying. I think they had a 12 to 18 month window to pay into their, their pension obligations before. That's obviously been reduced now and that we have that ability as well. So it's not just a give us. We're, we're trying to help on our aspect, our, our position as well to, to make this not such a daunting task. Obviously, there's still work to go we know that, uh, but we still pay 4. Or, I'm sorry, not 4, 9.455% of every one of our paychecks goes into our own pension fund. We pay that every, every paycheck. We can't defer it. We can't say we're not doing it this month. We can't reduce it. It's 9.455 every paycheck goes in, into our pension fund. Um, we're also Social Security exempt, so we don't pay into Social Security, and the city doesn't pay Social Security on us. So we are Social Security exempt unless we had a previous employer. Um, so those are other aspects that people need to know. And then there's the other aspect that, yeah, we can retire when we're 50 at Tier 1 or 55 at Tier 2 after 20 to 30 years of credible service with, with the city. So 
we retire younger. We have a we have a very physical and and mentally and physically and physiologically uh, demanding job. A firefighter is 14% more likely to end up with cancer uh, than the general public. So, taking that into account, by the time a firefighter retires, say at age 55, it's age 67 before Medicaid Medicare kicks in. That's 12 years where we pay our own insurance at that time. The city doesn't pay our insurance, we pay the city to have insurance. So we're also paying that out as well. And I just think those are important keys to keep in mind when we're talking about pensions. They're the talking points I like to bring up when we talk about pensions, just so everybody has that education. And since that's what we're doing tonight, is trying to help with that education process and that topic came up, I thought I'd just go ahead and share that, so. Can I add in, I'm gonna, I'm gonna add one funny story into this and it was a conversation with one of our local firefighters and we were talking about the age 50 retirement he's like and and i just love the way he put this he said um you know look if there's a fire at your house do you want a 50 year old firefighter to try to get you out of the house or do you want a 27 year old firefighter to try to get you out of the house and as somebody who's six and a half feet tall and 280 pounds i want the 27 year old guy to try to move me to get me out of that house however it takes him to do you know, so I, I just, it was a great story. I, th I thought it was a great example. Um, to finish up here, I had some individual questions for you guys, um, you know, based on how I've been following the campaign. Um, so, uh, Molly, something I was curious about with you, you have been on council for is it two months now? Uh, since the beginning of November. Beginning of November, okay. So, um, God, time flies. Uh, five months. So, uh, you know, it's really easy when you're sitting outside of city council to see what, you know, what they should be doing and to be the critical outsider, right? Not to imply that you were or weren't that, but, um, you know, it, you're, you're sitting in that chair right now and someone who's relatively new. So what would you say has been your biggest surprise, your biggest learning from, from being um, in that chair? Of I think one of the things that really stands out for me um, is how much um, heart there is behind um, each person on the council in that, that um, they're really there because they genuinely care about our community. And we come at it from a lot of different perspectives. I don't agree with everything that everybody on the council has to say. Um, and I don't agree with with any person on the council 100% of the time. And yet all of us, I think, are coming at it with a real passion for, for our community. And I think that doesn't always show through when you're on the outside. I think it's easy to, to um, look sometimes at, at some of the divisiveness and dividedness on the council and, and kind of look at even that as as you know a reason for blame or criticism and yet i really think that a lot of it is because we we believe that these things matter they make a difference to people's lives and and that's why people get passionate about it yeah uh nick the thing i was thinking about for you i was i saw your billboard over the weekend um it still baffles me that there's billboards for city council races. Like, it's incredible to me, but um, 
I guess that's that's where we are right now. We're doing billboards and Facebook ads and stuff. So um, anyway, it prominently featured fiscal responsibility. Um, and I think that can mean different things to different people. So I'm curious about what that what that term means for you to for you to um, you know when you display it prominently like that. What goes into that when it comes to city government? So I like to really equate it to how I think we all manage our houses, right? And or at least how I try to is not every good thing is something I should spend money on. Just because I see this and I say it's good and it's right and it it would be really nice, can't always choose. I have to make prioritization and I have to make choices. So that's a big part of it. The other part of fiscal responsibility is really first looking at, are we doing what we can to make the current things efficient and running them well? So in a lot of cases in, in my business world, I won't actually cut my budget or I won't cut additional headcount when they say I need to do more and, and not give me any more money. I'll try and focus on efficiency so that I can, with the same amount of money, provide more services so the average dollar cost per service is less. So it's about that prioritization and really doing that. And then looking forward to, Jamie said it very well when he talked about, uh, you actually said it better than I did, thank you. Um, when he talked about you know, not um, putting money in, making those choices to not put it in, that's not very forward looking and that's not very fiscally responsible. We have to be aware of what the costs are gonna be for the future, aware of not just the current impact of our decisions, but the long-term impact. So that's kind of the direction I would take with it. Okay, thank you. Uh, Jamie, a Anyone who listens to the podcast knows we like to talk about downtown a lot. Justin and I are big downtown fans. Um, so you were on the downtown task force several years ago. Um, I, maybe maybe a few things here or there got implemented, but it's still kind of sitting there gathering dust. So if you had to pick one thing, you could wave your magic wand and you could everyone would vote for it. What would be, uh, and you don't get to pick something that costs tens of millions of dollars. So, um, but what would be like the, your one top number one thing you think we should do to, to help downtown succeed? Um, streetscaping, right? Um, the big difference between our downtown and others, uh, for instance, you know, you go up north, you, even if you go to little north, you go to Ottawa, if you go to Champaign, is the default view is cement in downtown Bloomington. There are a couple trees here and there, um, but the trees are in little nicely cut four foot by four foot tree wells, which inherently says we have to put a small tree in here. And, and that's it. It's just, it's a tree. You know, there's some sort of uh, planters that um, inebriated people like to dump over on a regular basis, but, you know, we always pick those up and put those back where they were. But really it's, it's, greenery and and that streetscaping we could do we can do more right we could um we could make it so the default view is greenery and plantings and and things that come back every year and and i i always get it wrong i think it's perennials that come back every year but i'm i don't it doesn't make sense to me annuals should be the ones that come back annually to me but hey you know what am i i'm not a a horticulture guy but we could put things in place that are going to come back right we could make a nice um, bed and, and we could have the default be greenery with with um, 
path through it to get to the businesses. And we can, we can make sure that it's, everything is ADA and accessibility as we go along, but, but we could do so much more and it would make it feel like a more inviting environment where people want to spend time and, and hang out. And we, we saw last year, you know, one of the few bright spots of COVID last year was the outdoor dining and people loved it. And, and we, we blocked off a few parking spaces in front of all these different restaurants in downtown and in other places we, you know, around the city too. And people loved it. They loved sitting outside with the, the environment of the, you know, we have an architectural view and no matter where you look, you can see something that's just so unique. Um, you know, I like going up north and stuff, but a lot of the, the suburbs, when you go up to north, they all look the same. They're, there's like generic um, red brick and stucco view, right? And you guys, everybody knows what I'm talking about. But when you go to downtown Bloomington, a lot of those buildings have been in place since um, at least the 1900s. Some of them, you know, from the Great Fire, which you know, I'm sure the, not all you guys dealt with, but your predecessors, right? But um, the, the architecture is just amazing. The buildings were uniquely designed by individual architects, one building at a time, and you can find so many hidden details if you're sitting outside. But if you immediately go back inside because the outside's not welcome, you miss all that environment. And so that would be the one thing that I would really change. And um, if I could wave a magic wand, it would be really to change the, the streetscaping, which is not dead and it's still moving forward and it's um, probably gonna come back sometime this summer. So it's, yeah, we, we have, we knocked off a bunch of the little low hanging fruit off the task force and this is, this is a little bit bigger piece of one to intentionally design and say, this is what we want things to look like 15 years from now so that every time we do any kind of street repair, every time we do any resurfacing, every time we think about stuff, we're moving the ball a little bit closer towards that 15 year, 20 year plan. Let's put it back the way that we're gonna need it in the future as opposed to putting it back the exact same it is right now. I love that. It reminds me of one of the phrases that um, there's an author I like named Chuck Marone. Uh, he writes about municipal politics and planning. Wait, you talk about Chuck Marone? I've never heard you mention I him I talk before. about strong towns, yeah. But he talks about showering your places with love. And just like you don't need to do big things. You don't need to do fancy things. But if you just show that you care about them, it just it makes them more productive. So uh, I like how you're talking about showering downtown with a little bit of love there. Absolutely. Yeah. Well, I think we're getting kind of close to wrapping up here. So I want to give you guys one more chance to talk to um, the voters that are out there um, and help them understand what you're hoping to bring to council and why you deserve their vote. So um, let's see. Start with Nick. So one one thing that I've I've really gotten as I've talked to folks is is the idea that if we're going to represent them, I really want to be able to say that the, the people representing the, the city can really understand the perspective of the citizens. And one thing I like to say is that I, I've been blessed in my life. I've had a lot of opportunities to experience a lot of different things, both on the professional level and the personal level. And I really feel like that's given me the ability to look at and understand the view from other people and to see the problems that they're facing through their lens to try and understand them first. And as you do that, once you, you seek to really understand not just what people need, but why they need it and why they feel they need it, and maybe go two levels deeper with why, you know, not just, it's an old sales technique, the three levels of why. Um, if you go to that level, 
and really understand and see the lens through the lens that other people are looking at, I think you can be a good, true public servant that's there to serve as a, and, and help. And that's what I intend to bring, and I, I just hope people will see that and see, as Molly said, the, the passion and the heart and the care for, for Bloomington. And I just, uh, like I said, I encourage them to vote for us on uh, April 6th. You want me to go in there? Okay, cool. I didn't know which way we were going to go. Uh, so I just want to say, first of all, thank you to Local 49 for putting this together. Uh, this is great, an opportunity to talk and put out facts and information that are out to the community. Um, thank you to anybody who's listening or watching this today because it means you're part of the process. Uh, and local elections and local government are the neglected um, part of, of, but yet the most important one, because we can affect your property tax bills. We can affect how did you get clean drinking water to your house? We can affect, did the fire department show up within their six minute gold? We can affect all these things, but we have an incredibly low turnout for these elections. And I, I just hope, you know, thank you to everybody watching. Please make sure you go vote because it is important because we can, we are the level um, where we can we can work with and make the most change a lot of times, and also um, God, how's the way I want to say this? Um, civility is something we need to bring back. Everybody around you, this is your next door neighbor. It's your it's they live in the same. The kids probably go to school with your kids. You've probably seen them at the church or the gym or out on the Constitution Trail, and not everything is. Not everybody is the enemy because they don't think the same way as you. Um, and so keep in mind that even if on social media and you're not seeing the person in front of you, how you talk to people matters. How we talk to each other, how we respond to people. I respond to every email that I get from residents, and some of them are downright nasty. And uh, I respond anyway, but... Um, it's a lot easier to respond to people to start who are interested in having a conversation and explaining the differences and drilling into those levels of why than it is overcoming somebody who just launches straight at you with curse words the entire time. I get those emails and, and you deal with them and it's part of the job, but it shouldn't be part of the job. So I think you know everybody needs to have a little personal commitment towards returning to a level of civility and remembering we're neighbors, we're friends, we're colleagues, and, and I think that's everything I want to say at that time. There's a little soapbox there, I'm sorry. I also want to say thank you to, to Firefighters Local 49 for putting their trust in me and my campaign and and not just um, in words but in actions and and you know really hitting the the pavement on on behalf of the campaign um, you know in terms of, of why you should vote for me I could point to to some of the things that even just since November that that I've been a part of helping to move forward on the on the council um, that directly benefit the West Side and Ward 7 in particular, you know, O'Neill Park and Pool, um, the city roads um, projects that are going to be happening this summer are a couple of, of really strong points. But, you know, people who know me um, will hear me say, and and I think they, they recognize that I don't have all the answers. These the the issues that affect us as a community are um, are complicated. I don't have all the answers, and frankly, I don't claim to. Um, 
there are a lot of smart people on the on the west side and what i do have is a lot of questions and i have the ability i think to be able to carry forward the wisdom of my neighbors and the people who who can talk to me in a in such a way that that it can be heard by the rest of the community and i think that's the kind of voice that we need to have on on city council representing ward 7 um I, you know, I bring that that kind of ability to be able to to bring people together, and that's what I have to say. Well, I guess I'm going to go ahead and close us on out then for tonight. Uh, I cannot tell you all uh, how grateful I am that you spent this time with us tonight uh, in putting out this information to the voting public uh, of Bloomington. Uh, as far as the citizens of Bloomington go, I hope that you found this very informative and educational uh, and that you take the time and really consider your choices on April 6th and not just consider them, but go out and act on them. Uh, it is incredibly important that you visit the uh, Bloomington election uh, website, which I wish I would have wrote down and told you. BECvote.org. Thank you so much. Uh, I knew that's why I had you here for a reason. <laughs> um, go there, find your polling place, and then go to your polling place on April 6th, vote, uh, and again, uh, incredibly grateful that the three of you took the time out of your busy days to come spend and uh, record this uh, to put this out to the public. Tyson, thank you, and PodBN for being here to moderate. Uh, and we are incredibly thankful for all of you, and we wish you the best of luck, and uh, we hope that we continue to work with you in the future. So thank you. <laughs>